We're going to be in Acts chapter 12, but I'm going to start reading in Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to read verse 35 down to verse 40, because this story is relevant to the book of Acts here. You remember this story. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of the fishermen, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. We like that story. We liked the version in Luke because Luke gave a little more detail, which is that Mrs. Zebedee, Mama, told these boys, you never get anything if you don't ask for it. And she dragged them before Jesus and said, Jesus, we want to ask you something. It's, it's a comic story in a way. And funny that then it says the apostles or the other disciples were indignant at them. Probably mostly because they hadn't thought of it first. But James and John, right? And we laugh at that story because it's, it's full of youthful zeal. It's got misplaced enthusiasm. And I'm sure that the disciples laughed at that story. They remembered it. Do you remember when you asked Jesus if you, if you could be at his right hand? I was like, oh, don't tell that story. Come on. And it, it is kind of funny because it, we can see ourselves in that, you know. But... After what we read in this story today, that, that story probably took on a whole new tone for the apostles. And sometimes when you're serving the Lord, it's great and it's awesome and you love the memories, but things will happen where all of a sudden ministry is not so much fun anymore. And this is what we're going to see in the book of Acts chapter 12. Let's read the first five verses. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. We saw early on with Stephen that there was persecution that came upon the church. But when Saul was converted, it was such an embarrassment to the Sanhedrin that they backed off the church for some time. And it's really been one success after another. We saw Philip's mission journeys that he went on, and we saw the Gentiles brought in, and that even the Jewish church in Jerusalem were willing to provisionally accept that, that, all right, this is what God is doing. But here, the church suffers a crushing blow at the hands of King Herod. There are several King Herods in the New Testament. That's because the the name Herod was a dynastic name. It was a name of the family. They were all named Herod, kind of like all the kings of England were King Henry or King George, and you have to keep track of them by the numbers. This is Herod Agrippa. The one that the wise men came to and tried to have Jesus killed as a baby, that was the man known as Herod the Great. He was the first one to have the name Herod. And he had a son named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one who worked with Pilate to put Jesus to death. 
That was also the one that beheaded John the Baptist. This is Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great, and his mother was a woman named Mariamne. She was a Hasmonean princess. Do you remember who the Hasmoneans were? This was after the Jews had removed the Greeks during the Maccabean Rebellion, that whole story. And for about 100 years, the Jews ruled themselves. And those kings were called the Hasmoneans. So this is very significant. You remember that Herod was an Edomian. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau, which was part of the reason that the Jews hated him so much. Because not only is this a foreign king, this is... This is the son of Esau ruling over the sons of Jacob. That's not right. But Herod Agrippa's mother was a Hasmonean. She was Jewish royalty who had married into the Herodian dynasty. And if you look through Herod's history, Herod Agrippa, he grew up in Rome. He made a lot of great connections there, which he would use to his advantage. He would go back to the land of Israel. He would force out Philip, one of his uncles. He would force out Herod Antipas, who was the one that crucified Jesus or worked with the crucifixion of Jesus. He was the sister of Herodias, who, remember, was the incestuous wife of Herod Antipas. And he eventually, through his connections in Rome and through his political maneuverings, became the king over all of the land of Israel, which is Galilee, Samaria, Judea, and even into the Decapolis. And he was known to the Jews as a good king. When he was in the land of Israel, when he was in Jerusalem, it said he never missed a day sacrificing in the temple. He kept all of the purity laws. They even allowed him to read from the scriptures at some of the festivals that they had because they were very excited about this because he was kind of sort of Jewish. We were kind of sort of getting back to the Hasmonean days. We're trying to get rid of Rome. Well, now we've got another one of them on the throne, kind of sort of. Really what we see about him is that he was a very clever politician. He knew his constituency, and he knew what they wanted to hear. And we see this exactly played out in this story. We're not told what it was that prompted the execution of James, but we do know that according to Mark 3.17, Jesus called James and his brother John the sons of what? Thunder. You ever known a preacher who could be called a son of thunder before? They, they love the Lord and they're rock and roll, but they get up there and man, you just feel like you can feel the, the hellfire licking at your heels while you're sitting there. That's the kind of guy who James was. He was not the sit back and let's see what happens kind of guy. He was the one that wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritan city for not giving them a hotel for the night. Lord, would you like us to call down fire from heaven? I believe I've got enough faith for that. This was the one who went and asked Jesus if he could sit at the right hand. We don't know for sure, but tradition tells us that John was the youngest of the apostles. So James would have been the big brother Zebedee. Sons of the fishermen Zebedee, we know that they were known to the high priesthood. These would have been boys that came from money, that came from status, so they were accustomed to that. And it looks like he had some of that attitude that would allow you to run a successful fishing business. And the Lord chose him to be an apostle. So maybe he was just a little too much for Herod. Whatever it was, he says he was put to death by the sword. This is actually interesting because according to the Jewish law and tradition, a Jew was to be stoned to death. But if somebody had been teaching false gods in a city, then they were to be executed by the sword. It was supposed to be a worse form of punishment. So that could have been why he was killed that way. And we also know from tradition that when James was brought to trial by the attendant soldier, the officer. 
that the officer heard his testimony in trial, proclaimed himself a Christian, and died alongside James. They were both killed together. That, that's the way to go, isn't it? Where even the people that are there to make sure that the trial goes well are being converted. That's who he was. And he saw that it pleased the Jews. And this is, this is who Herod was. He was all about pleasing the Jews. There's a very famous story where he was reading from the law on one of the holy days and he came to the passage where it says, you will not have a foreigner to rule over you. Now this is bad news for Herod Agrippa because he is a foreigner. And it says he began to weep as he read that and all the people began to cry, no, you are our brother. You're one of us. You're our brother. Very clever man. And he knows that they liked this. They liked that James was put to death. No doubt this son of thunder gave the Sanhedrin, no end of trouble. But he arrested Peter as well. Oh, you like me killing one apostle? I'm going to go get the number one apostle. Let's get Peter. And he threw him into prison. This is likely the Antonia Fortress, which would have been, we've talked about this before, remember, right on the corner of the temple complex, looking down into the temple. And we talked about how that would have chafed as the Jews had to go to worship and watch this Roman outpost, watching them and making sure that nothing Nothing rebellious was going on. Well, Peter was thrown in there. During the feast, consider the fact that Peter would have been hearing all of the festivities going on. He would have heard all the psalms going on. He would have heard the people bringing their sacrifices and the bleeding of the lambs. He's under four squads of soldiers. A squad was four. It was called a quaternion, which is where qua, it's like quadrant or four. Sixteen guards. Because Peter had been in prison before, you'll remember, and he had gotten out. Well, they're not going to take that chance again. And he's intending to execute him after the festival. You'll remember, this is the same festival at which Jesus was arrested. And he is observing the law like a good Jewish king would. And said, we'll wait till after the festival. Because that would be unclean for us to kill this man before. Same hypocrisy that led them to, at least for a while, delay killing Jesus. Although Judas gave them the opportunity that they couldn't pass up. As far as the church in Jerusalem was concerned, this is the worst case scenario. Even in the earlier persecution, the apostles had been spared. Remember it said they were all driven from Jerusalem except the apostles. The only time the apostles had been touched had been early on when they were imprisoned and then when they were beaten by the council. But at this point, you guys, this is 10, maybe 15 years later. It's been a long time since that happened. Maybe they'd become accustomed to being part of the scenery in Jerusalem. The Jews had gotten used to them. Maybe even the Sanhedrin were like, look, we can't get rid of them. Let's just try and ignore them and maybe they'll go away. But now there's blood in the water and the sharks are going to come for him. And this would have shocked the church. Can you imagine? We, we read about James and John's mother who was following with Jesus and taking good care of them. And she was kind of the, the den mother of the apostles for a while. And she took care of them. Now her boy has been executed by Herod the king. All she's got now is her son, John. And the church is afraid, you can imagine. I wonder if they even went to the festival. Who knows? And now, as far as they're concerned, two of the apostles, two of Jesus' inner circle are as good as dead. But the most significant bit of information in these verses comes in verse 5. It says, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You read those verses, it's all bad, and then at the end, but the church was praying. 
you, you see a lot of this, and I think some of it is hyped up in order to get angry Christian clicks on people's websites. But still, it's frustrating when people are like, stop sending your prayers. It's a waste of time. That doesn't help anybody. I don't want your prayers. When there's a shooting or there's a hurricane or there's an earthquake or whatever, and Christians say things like, we're praying for you. That's not good enough. That doesn't cut it. That's kind of how the world views prayer. What are you doing? Well, we're praying. Oh, gee, thanks. But we know better, don't we? We know better that you can have all this long list of stuff. Herod is king. James is dead. Peter's in prison. But the church is praying. And that tips all the scales in the other direction. We have a tendency as Christians, as people, to see our struggle and our fight as physical only. That we are living in a material world and we see material, physical problems happen. We think that that's as far as it goes especially when things go wrong. When there's a good king, when there's a ruler or a governor or a senator or president that we like, they're on our team, they're one of us, all of a sudden they turn on us. Maybe the, the Jews and the church appreciated Herod too. Maybe they thought, hey, maybe God is slowly bringing us back. Maybe we're finally going to have proper Jewish rulership again. And now he's after the apostles. Maybe there was a betrayal that they felt when we see the brightest lights of the church snuffed out, when you see prominent missionaries or prominent Christians that are either killed or imprisoned or canceled or whatever it is, and we're like, what's going on now? What are we supposed to do? We start to look at things materially, and we come up with material solutions because we're Americans. We're pioneers. We're fixers. We're going to go out into the wilderness, and we're going to make a country out of it. We don't care if there's lions and tigers and bears. We'll fight the lions and the tigers and the bears. Bring it on. So when problems come our way, we're like, all right, well, what do we do? There's nothing you can do here. There's nothing you can do. And you, you end up like we read in Psalm 10 this morning. Lord, why are you ignoring us? But this is what we need to know. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says that's where we fight. The struggle of the church is a spiritual one, and things happen for spiritual reasons, because it's like a wrestling match. If, uh, he says we wrestle. Any of you guys did wrestling in high school, or if you've ever watched UFC or anything like that, when people are grappling with each other, it, it can look like there's no motion for a long time. Like they're just holding each other. I remember watching some of that, and my sister would be like, they're not doing anything. I'm like, uh, yeah, they are. You've got two very strong men pulling as hard as they can. And what happens? All of a sudden, bam, there's a flash of motion, and the one guy flips the other one over, and now he's got his arm or whatever. And that's what it's like with the devil. We're wrestling, where you get into a position where neither of you is going to budge, and everything feels normal. And then he gets you right where he wants you, and the church gets flipped over on their back. What happened? Why would that governor do that? Why would Agrippa come after the apostles? Because there's a spiritual thing going on here. And this has always been the plan. There is an enemy that is constantly working to undermine the church. And sudden calamity is often the work of the devil. We have to remember that. I don't understand. It came out of nowhere. Well, did it? As far as we're concerned, it came out of nowhere. But the enemy was plotting it this whole time. This is why, and I'm not going to go off on this, but you cannot trust in strategies 
and numbers or government, Lord help us. You fight the fight on your turf, the realm of the Spirit, where you are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, and no one can touch you, where you have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Keep the fight there. If we're going to work with the UFC analogy, you got some guys that if they get you on the ground, it's over. Because he's a jujitsu master. He's the best in the world. And if he gets you on the ground, you're done. So the strategy is we're going to keep him up because your arms are longer than his. It's like, wh where are your strengths? Play to your strengths. As a Christian, your strength is in the spirit, not in the physical. But we can devote so much of our attention to the physical world. Okay, we're going to make sure that nothing goes wrong. But that's not where the fight is. That's just where the fight is manifested. How you frame the trouble of your life matters. Did you know that? How you look at it, how you choose to characterize it matters. If it's only physical, then you're going to be in trouble. Because if your, your finances falling to pieces are just a physical problem, then okay, I don't have any money, there's no solution. If our health falling apart, or our relationships falling apart, or persecution against the church is just physical, then we're in trouble. The, the church had no political pull here. If this is just a physical problem, that's it. There is no solution. But if you can frame it as a spiritual battle, all of a sudden there is a solution, and there is hope, and there is joy. Now, you can run so far away with this that everything that happens is because there was a demon that was sitting inside of my engine and made my oil run dry and made me never check it. Okay, you, you understand this, but when, when it comes to your soul especially, when it comes to things that affect your spirit, it's spiritual. When you say, okay, we are going to be a praying family and we're going to pray every morning. The next day you show up to work and your boss says, I'm going to need you to come in early for the foreseeable future. Well, what are we going to do? What do you mean, what are you going to do? You, you, there's no coincidences when you're talking about this kind of stuff. You have to figure it out. Get on your knees and pray before the Lord. Well, I know my boss, God's not changing his mind. If God could change Nebuchadnezzar's mind, I think he can work with your boss. And if you are now having visions of your boss crawling around in the grass like an animal like Nebuchadnezzar did, <laughs> you, you've got the wrong message from this. <laughs> you've got to liberate your perception by faith. Because if you're just looking at it in the physical, you're going to fall into despair because you can't fix it. But if you look at it in the spiritual, like, well, the Lord can handle that. And you do that by prayer. And that's when you find power to press on and keep going. Because if you were to look at what was happening to Peter and James, it, it just looks bureaucratic. The government's doing what the government's doing. But it wasn't. And we're going to see this played out in the next few verses. This was a demonic move. I don't know if I'd go that far. Uh, well, you need to read the story with me then. Because the Lord is going to bring about an angelic response to what just seems to be a physical problem. Let's start at verse 6. This is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. I love it. Down to verse 11. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, that would have been the day of Passover, just finished. So again, Peter would have heard all the Psalms, all the sacrifices. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. I love this part. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. 
And he did so. And they said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I love that. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So Peter's under guard. Two chains. This is how Paul would be chained later. He would be chained one shackle on each wrist, going to guards next to him that had shackles on their wrist. There were two gates, and there were sentries before the gate. So likely what it was, you had two here, one here, one there, and then the big iron gate that led out of the fortress. Remember, there were four squads of soldiers, and typically they would have rotated every three hours. So Peter is getting woken up every three hours to change the chains. He's not getting out of there. Peter is asleep. He's probably resigned himself to his fate. It's probably been a week of prayer. It's probably been a week of appeals. Maybe guys like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea or Mary, who we're going to read about in a minute, who had some money and some influence, were trying to get some pull, but it just wasn't happening. And Peter's like, well, Lord, I guess that's it. I'm ready to die. And he goes to sleep. But then the next thing he knows, an angel kicks him awake. I love that. Have you ever noticed, this is just, this is no application to this, so don't read too much into it, that when angels talk to women in the Bible, they're so gentle, and when they talk to guys, they're like, would you just get with it already? Remember Zechariah and Mary, they went to Mary, blessed art thou among women, and, and you know, the Lord is going to be with you, and she asks a question, and they're like, oh yes, don't worry, it's going to be all right. Zechariah's like, how's that going to work? Well, you're going to be cursed with muteness and deafness <laughs> until that baby is born. I imagine if this was Mary in the, in the jail, the angel would have gently shook her awake and said, Mary, it's time to get up. He comes and says, Peter, boom, get up. <laughs> Flips his mattress over. Time to go. There's no application to that. That's just me noticing. He kicks him awake and he rushes him out of the door. Get up. Get dressed. Put your sandals on. Put your cloak on. And I think it's kind of funny because yeah, in verse 9, he thought this was a vision. So Peter's probably like, wow, an angel. What is the Lord trying to teach? Would you get your shoes on, Peter? Why am I putting my shoes on? Is this like when Moses was told to take his shoes? Would you put your jacket on? We're going out. We're going out. Okay. And he's trying to get him out. And Peter's just like walking and looking around. Look, the guards aren't noticing us. Yes, would you hurry up and get out? And then the gate opened on its own. Actually, that word for of its own accord is automate. It's where we get the word automatic from. So some people try to say, oh, you see, there was an inside job and there was a servant that helped Peter out. Well, he didn't open the gates automatically because that hadn't been invented yet. So this is definitely an angel. And it doesn't click for Peter until he's out of the fortress, out into the city, down a street. The angel leaves and he goes, I think I'm really out. <laughs> I love it. He had an angelic escort out of the jail. There's actually a lot of humor in this story. We're going to see more in a minute. So what, what happened here? What happened is there was a SEAL Team 6 style angelic breakout for Peter. There is an angelic dimension to this story. And I could say there is an angelic dimension to every story. We just don't see it. Angels fill the Bible from the very beginning when the Lord put the angel in the Garden of Eden with the sword to prevent them from coming back. Throughout Israelite history, through the Gospels, the angel that came and strengthened Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, into the book of Acts, and they are throughout church history too, I might add. 
People love to say things like, well, after the book of Acts, we don't read any stories about angels and miracles anymore. Are you kidding me? They're all over the place. But what happens is we look at them and we're all skeptical, like, oh, that probably didn't happen. People will say things like, no, why did this author say that there was an angel that came? What was he trying to communicate? That there was an angel is what he was trying to communicate. I've known people that have seen angels. I certainly haven't. I really hope I do. But the Bible tells us that angels are there. Psalm 91, verse 11. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. The author says, are they, meaning angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What's an angel? It's a ministering spirit there to help you. Well, I've never seen one. Actually, Hebrews 13, 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality for strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And that's something. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm going to be a little more careful from now on. Who knows who you're talking to? The initial rebellion in the Bible was of Satan and his angels. And they are the primary antagonists of both God and man. And we, people, humans, our hearts are the battleground of heaven and hell. We can tend to think that we're all there is. Don't do that because that's part of the strategy of the enemy. Is to convince us that it's only us. It's not. And I do not presume to understand all of it, but when you read in Daniel 10 and elsewhere, there is real combat and real strategy going on between fallen and holy angels. The Bible describes the demonic ones as principalities and powers, which are titles of rank. And it shows us that there are demonic authorities over kingdoms and territories. And part of the mission of the gospel is to go out and proclaim the kingdom of whom? Of God. You're taking the Lord's kingdom and going out to the whole rest of the world. You read in the book of Deuteronomy especially, where the Lord tells Moses, I have chosen Israel for my inheritance. It's like The devil has claimed every other place in the world. I'll take Israel. It's kind of like a dodgeball game. All of you guys against me and Israel, and we'll see who wins. And now the Lord is saying, we're going to take back what is rightfully the Lord's. So in this story, you've got the gospel subverting the established order, converting priests, sending it out to the Gentiles now, and all of a sudden the king decides that he's going to eliminate the apostles. That's not spontaneous. That is a demonic plan. Remember, Peter and the Twelve in Acts chapter 5 had been in prison and had been released by an angel before. And now when Peter's put in prison, he's not put in the public jail where he was before, where your friends could come and bring you food and things like that. He's down in the dungeon this time. He's got soldiers here, a soldier there, a soldier there. They're rotating to make sure they're all fresh and they're all awake. Nobody's getting in to see Peter this time. It's interesting because whereas before the angel just opened the gate and said, go out and preach. Now it's like the angel's in a hurry. I love that because it, it communicates that there's more going on here. You can imagine a spiritual skirmish going on. There's a whole battle going on that Peter doesn't see. All he sees is the one angel. It's like, okay, we're going to go in. We're going to start a fight over here like we're fighting down this way. You are going to go down into the dungeon and take Peter out while everybody else is distracted. I don't think that's how it works. That sure seems to be like how it's working. Why else would the angel be in a hurry? We got to go. We got to go now, Peter. Really? Why? Just get up and go. Put your shoes on. Because there's a fight going on. This is the war of which we are a part. This is why in some cases, the Lord tells us you've got to have prayer and fasting for this one. 
because there is strategy and there is fighting going on. And I hope this helps you again frame your struggles and your life. You have a role to play. You have a job to do, but you have angels that are helping you. And the goal here is not to become fascinated with angels. Become fascinated with the Lord. That there's a team. It's not just us, but there's a spiritual fight going on too. And to know that you are being opposed by the devil and his angels. And once again, you can imagine that there's a demon living in your microwave if you want to go crazy. But what you do need to avoid is the opposite side that says, I don't even know if I feel comfortable talking about that. Angels and demons, aren't we kind of past that? No, we're not, because it's what the Bible teaches us. You're not alone. You have spiritual help. And this is why you concentrate your efforts in the spiritual. Trusting that the Lord is able to work things out that we can't see. God, why aren't you doing anything about it? I wonder if Peter prayed that while he's in the jail. Meanwhile, there's this angelic rescue being planned. And the Lord's like, I am doing something, Peter. You just can't see it right now. You ever say that to your kids? When you're getting something ready, like, why can't I have it now? It's like, I'm getting it ready. Would you stop whining? God's probably got a better attitude about it than I tend to. But Peter's released. And now we get to verse 12, go down to verse 17. When he realized this, I think I've actually been released. He went to the house of Mary, yet another Mary. This is a very common name. In uh, Aramaic, it would have been Mariam, which is Miriam. You can imagine why there were a lot of Jewish women that had that name named after Moses' sister. The mother of John, whose other name was Mark. You might want to underline that because we're going to see a lot of him. Where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. Read that as, you saw a ghost, Rhoda. But Peter continued knocking. I'm still under arrest here. When they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So Peter runs to the house of Mary, the mother of Mark, same Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. We believe that he wrote that in conjunction with Peter, writing Peter's stories down. His first name was John, so he's going to be called John Mark in this book. It is possible, according to tradition, and there's a part of Mark 14 that might give this indication, it's possible that this was the house where they held the Last Supper. It's also possible that this is where the upper room was from the day of Pentecost. We can't be sure, but it sure makes the story more interesting. They were relatives of Barnabas. Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 tells us that Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. So maybe there was a connection there between Barnabas and Mary and John Mark. And of course we know that John Mark is going to be an important figure in the history of the church. He would go on to found the church of Alexandria. But uh, we're going to see a lot of failure on his part before we get there. But right now he's just there at his house praying for Peter. And Peter knocks on the door. And Rhoda is so excited when she hears that it's Peter, she forgets to open the door. You know, she goes up, someone knocks on the door, and maybe she'd been told, don't let anybody in, because you never know who's going to be. Who is it? It's Peter. It's who? It's Peter. Oh, it's Peter! And she runs upstairs to tell everybody, Peter's here. Where is he? I forgot to open the door, but he's down there. It shows you the love that the church had for Peter. 
and they don't believe her. This is so funny to us because these are, this is the early church. This is John Mark. These are prayer warriors. These people had seen healings and miracles and they had known Jesus Christ. And she says, our prayer's been answered. And they say, you're crazy. You must have seen a ghost. You must have seen Peter's angel. He must have maybe died in the prison and now you've seen an angel. Who knows? Kind of like when they saw Jesus walking on the water and they said, it's a ghost. It's interesting, isn't it? That they didn't even believe that God could answer their prayers. Maybe they'd given up asking for the Lord to deliver Peter out of the jail. Maybe they hadn't even thought to ask, Lord, send an angel to lead him out of that jail. That's the kind of thing where a kindly older saint puts their arm around you and says, now let's pray for something more realistic. Well, but wouldn't that be cool? Yes, it would be cool, but the Lord doesn't usually work that way. But they finally get him in and he tells them the whole story. He leaves Jerusalem, doesn't tell us where. Probably, I would think, going to Antioch, because Galatians chapter 2 is going to tell us that he would spend some time there in Antioch. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. Some traditions say this is when Peter went to Rome. There's no biblical evidence for that, but it doesn't really matter. And he leaves it in the hands of James and the other apostles. This is obviously not the same James that was executed earlier. This is James, the brother of Jesus. We've only seen him one other time back in chapter 1 when he was with the 120 in the upper room. Paul tells us that when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his brother James. He got his own private appearance from Jesus. We know from the book of John and elsewhere, James was not too happy with Jesus. He kind of sort of made a scene at dinner one night and then didn't see his brother again until his death. But he has become now, as Paul would say, a pillar in the church. Tradition and history tells us that he would become the bishop or the pastor of Jerusalem. Because you remember the apostles, their job was to take the gospel around the world. Thomas went to India, for example. We know all the places Peter went and so on. James was the one that stayed in Jerusalem and oversaw that church. He would be martyred in AD 62. This was done by the Sanhedrin. They stoned him similar to how they stoned Stephen. They had no authority to do that, and it brought... Roman retribution back on the Sanhedrin because like, you guys have no authority to execute people. There is even some tradition among the Jews that when James died, they were so shocked that when AD 70, when Rome came in, there were some that said because James had stopped praying for us, the Romans were able to come in. It's really radical how he was known as such a prayer warrior and he had the respect of the Jews, even though he was a Christian. Very interesting history you can go look up. Read Eusebius and some of these other church historians. Got some great stuff for you. Peter's been sprung from the prison that none of them were even expecting. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says, Now glory to him, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. You ever feel like you're asking too much from God? Uh, that'd be a little much. Let's just ask that the trial goes well for Peter. And somebody says, Lord, I pray that you'd send an angel to set him free and the soldiers wouldn't even notice and you'd automatically open the big iron gate and that he'd get away with nobody even noticing. I don't know if we should ask for that. You're sort of putting God on the spot there, don't you know? But it's also very common, and it's very easy to put pressure on the church to pray harder. 
right? Pastors will talk about that. One of the easiest messages in the world to preach is pray more, tithe more, go to church more, evangelize more. Have more faith when you pray. If you just had more faith, then things would happen. How much faith did these people have? Not much. <laughs> hey, Peter's set free. Impossible. But we've been praying. See how little their faith was in this story. Faith enough to pray. That's all it takes. The Lord does not rely on the skill of individual Christians to accomplish his will. I'd love to do that for her, but if she was just a, a better prayer, if only she was better at prayer, then maybe I could answer. That's not how God works. The Lord is a good father and he takes pity on his children. And Ephesians 3 tells us that God is able to do more than you could even imagine in your prayers. The most wild thing you could think to pray for, God's like, I could do even greater than that. I could do more than that. And that was such little faith on the part of the church. Do you see how powerful prayer is? The feeble, weak, doubtful prayers of the church were still enough to overcome the will of this king and get a man out of an impenetrable fortress. What would you think if some popular Christian pastor was taken away and put in a maximum security prison? Maybe he's taken to... One of those places where there's like a moat and there's sharks in the water and you can't get out and his camera's on him all the time. And one day they just look up and where'd he go? And they look through all the cameras and one minute he's there and then the next frame, blip, he's just not there anymore. And there he is out in public preaching the gospel somewhere. Wow, I never thought to pray for that. The Lord's like, yeah, but I thought of it. And my imagination is bigger than yours. If you have properly oriented your life as a spiritual one, not as just merely physical, then you're going to put all of your energy into spiritual warfare and see spiritual victory. James, who is this James we're talking about here, would write in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous man has great power. Prayer is not incantation. We're not doing the ritual like we've got to say it 10,000 times and now it will happen. You're talking to God. You're, you're having a conversation with the Lord, putting things into his hands and seeking his will. And that is where the church is unstoppable. You want to put it in the political realm? We can be stopped. You want to put it in the financial realm? We can be stopped. Business strategies, we can be stopped. But when it's the Lord at work through the church, no one can stop us. And Peter is going to leave He's going to go to another place. This is not some fearful thing, right? I think sometimes we, we can look down on Christians like, well, why did you leave? Because there was persecution. The, the apostles were not foolish in sticking around just waiting to get executed because there was more for him to do. And he relied upon the Lord. Later on, Paul is going to say, God is actually leading me to go to prison here. So I think we need to be careful not to judge the apostles and other Christians who... Why would you leave if there was persecution? Well, sometimes that's what the Lord has us to do. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Where is he? He's right here. No, he's not. Where'd he go? And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. 
Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Yeah, ew, I heard some of you say that. That's disgusting. As you can imagine, there is a bit of a hullabaloo over what happened the night before in the fortress. The soldiers are executed and Herod goes on vacation. Maybe he was just embarrassed at this. Maybe he just had had it dealing with these people. I'm going to go to Caesarea, which is a very Roman city where I can let my guard down a little bit. And the story zooms out here. And these verses read almost like they're not in the book of Acts. They almost read like secular history that you'd be reading somewhere. That Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenician cities in modern-day Lebanon, are maybe being blockaded by Herod, and they're relying on him for trade. And they come to an agreement, and so they're going to have a celebration. And this story here is recorded in several contemporary historians. Josephus especially tells this same story with the same details in his secular history. It's not scripture, obviously. And they tell us that this was not just a day of celebration. This was shows and festivals, and they were having the the games, the Olympic-type games that they would have in the Roman culture. And it's a big deal. And Herod comes out and said he was in a silver robe. It was a robe that was woven with silver in it so that when the sun shone on him in this beach town, it was like he was glistening in the sun. He gives a brilliant speech, which, of course, the Romans honored people who could give orations like that, men like Cicero, right? And the people said, before we only regarded you as a man, but now we know you're a god. And he let them. That was his sin. He didn't come out and say, I'm a god, worship me. But he let them flatter him that way. And an angel struck him down. According to the story from Josephus, when Agrippa had been in prison before, there had been an owl that landed in his window, and that was an omen to him that he was going to be released. But someone told him, if you ever see an owl again, then it's going to be time for you to die. And the story goes that while he was giving the speech, and as they were cheering for him, he looked up and there was an owl sitting on one of the the banners nearby. Eusebius, the church's story, would say he saw an angel there. It, it really doesn't matter. It's just interesting details. But he immediately doubled over. I used to wonder, now, did he like immediately like fall down because the worms were eating him? Or was he then struck with the worms that killed him later on? According to this and according to Josephus, he immediately doubled over in pain and fell down the stairs. And it took him five days to die. He was eaten from the inside out by worms for five days. And he died rotten and stinking. This, by the way, is how Antiochus Epiphanes had died. You remember this guy? He was the Greek king that sacrificed a pig in the holy place. And the Jews said, well, that's about what he deserved, is dying being eaten by worms. And they couldn't even bury his body because it smelled so bad. Very interesting little note here. That was how God dealt with kings that abused his people, the Jews. Now we have a half-Jewish king abusing the church, receiving the same treatment from the Lord. It's a sign to us and to the whole world that the church is, in fact, God's people. And what's so cool about this story, in a way, is this is the world of Rome. It's like, I've left behind Jerusalem and the Jews and the Christians and their religious stuff. I just want to go and have a good time and be part of the culture that I'm used to. But that is no longer an option because Messiah has come. And now, as Paul will say in Acts 17, the Lord is bringing to judgment the nations around the world. And Rome, as you know, is going to be taken by storm by the church. And this is just the first little inkling they get that there may be something to this Christian church here. 
This chapter began with a king asserting his authority over God's people, and it ends with God asserting his authority over every king. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1.6 says that since God considers it just, fair, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. I like that verse. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That means if you as a church are harassed by somebody, God considers it just, just fair to do the same thing to them. God's on your team. Aren't you glad? You've got these angels that are working on our behalf. First, they, they launched this secret mission to get Peter out of prison. Now they're doing an assassination job on Herod in a Roman city, worshiping their false gods, him saying, yeah, I am pretty great, aren't I? And the Lord says, no, nope, not in my book. God still takes care of us that way. This would be the last of Herodian rule. At the end of this book, we're going to see people like Bernice, who are descendants of the Herods, but they were no longer in charge of anything. They were still there because they were rich and they were connected, but they were no longer going to be ruling over God's people. It's part of the reason that things would accelerate in later decades because now they're under direct Roman rule and they are not as indulgent with these rebellious Jews as the Herodians were. Herod was what you call a people pleaser, wasn't he? Starts out at the beginning, he saw that executing James pleased the Jews. I'm going to please the Jews more. I'm going to execute Peter too. He comes to the end and he's giving this speech and the people are chanting his name. Oh, you're a God, not a man. It's exactly what Herod wanted. So he let them. If we, as we've been saying, are only evaluating things physically, then the way that the world physically values things is going to be how we value things. Herod saw that as a king, having the support of his people was the most important thing. We know that that's not the case. The most important thing is that rulers are faithful and obedient to the Lord and execute justice and righteousness according to his word. That's the most important thing. But Herod didn't see things that way. He cultivated a reputation. He climbed the ladder. Maybe he even thought he was blessed, but God saw right through it. It's so easy for us to be people pleasers too, huh? And you know what's so important for us to see about Herod here? He did not come out and say, I'm a God, worship me. He let other people say things like that about him. Maybe he was able to delude himself. Oh, they're just flattering. They don't really mean it. It's fine. Let them have their fun. They're excited that I finally brought their food supply back. It's okay. And the Lord saw that as inexcusable. We can do the same thing. We put something out there. I'm not going to say anything about myself, but if people want to talk about how great I am and how spiritual I am, then, you know, that's fine. They can do that. Don't do that. Don't do that on Facebook. Don't do that on Instagram or whatever. What? I didn't say anything. I just mentioned that I happen to be giving 50% of my income to poor people this week. <laughs> and everybody, oh, you're so wonderful. Oh, 5,000 likes. And oh, we're going to tell everybody how great you are. And you're like, oh, thank you. Yes, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate that. The Lord looks at that and goes, what is wrong with you? Why do you need the applause of people? Why do we do that? What is wrong with us that we need the applause of people? Even if it's like five people. I want them to like me. I want them to think how great I am. And the way we present ourselves, both in life and online, we're presenting ourselves for the explicit purpose of having people do for us what they did for Herod. 
We want them to not worship us, but just to talk about how great we are. Just to boost my self-esteem a little bit. They make me feel good. It might be done digitally, but it's the same old temptation. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, after, in Galatians 1, he goes on this big, long tirade against people who want to add to the gospel. And he says some things that are pretty harsh. And he goes, oh, am I now trying to seek the approval of man? Because they accuse Paul of being a people pleaser. Paul just says whatever they want to hear. And he comes out and says, if you preach circumcision along with the gospel, you're going to hell. And he goes, oh, am I now seeking the approval of man? Young Paul was very sarcastic. Or of God. Am I trying to please man? Listen to this. If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You can't do both. Friendship with the world is enmity towards God. The only person you need to care about who who cares about you is God. What does the Lord say about you? When you start bringing in other people's opinions, now you're in trouble. Because now you're going to get used to it. You're going to get used to them liking you. You're going to get used to them saying nice things about you. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. They used to say that I slew ten thousands. We've got to get rid of David. It's a danger. It's a snare, you guys. The fear of man brings a snare, the Bible says. We gain nothing as Christians by working the worldly system. We live in a, in a world of, of angels and demons, of God, of Christ, of the word, of prayer and miracles. Why do we want to be like them? We shouldn't. We've left all that behind. Paul says, I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. It's dead as far as I'm concerned. What happens is we as Christians get frustrated because we still want the acclaim. We still want it. And we get frustrated with Jesus. We get frustrated with pastors and teachers who tell us to ignore those things because we want them so bad. And so what do we do? We do what Paul says in 2 Timothy. We heap up for ourselves teachers who will whisper in our ears exactly what we want to hear. Yeah, go out. Go get the, get the applause of the world. Doesn't Jesus want you to have that? Didn't the people love Jesus? Didn't they love David? Shouldn't we be doing that too? No, we shouldn't. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You gain everything by throwing yourself at Christ's feet and trusting to his wisdom and retribution. But Lord, if I don't do anything, they're going to win. The Lord's like, it's my fight. I got this. Why does it depend on you? Why in the world do you think it depends on you? Well, because I can stop them. The Lord's like, and if you did, then what? They'll come back and they'll do it again. And then everyone's going to give you all the glory. The Lord says, I would rather do it my way. His way is better anyway. Verse 24, Herod was eaten by worms, but the word of God increased and multiplied. You're going to see a lot of this. The church is just marching on despite what the world does. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Told you we'd see him again. Now, chronologically, chapter 12 was probably out of order from the rest of the the book. That's not a bad thing. Luke even said in chapter 12, verse 1, about that time. We saw this in the Gospel of Luke a lot, that Luke wasn't always going one right after the other. What is probably going on is he's telling the story of Saul and the, the church of Antioch, and he's about to go and tell you about all the things that Saul and Barnabas would do on their missionary journeys, but he goes, oh, but there's just one more story i got to tell you. This was a little before that, but let me tell you what happened when Peter was put in prison. So that shouldn't 
affect anybody's faith. We know that Herod Agrippa died in AD 44. We also know that the famine that came upon Judea came after that, which is why Saul and Barnabas were in Jerusalem. So Luke is picking up where he left off in the story. And this is the last significant Peter story we're going to get in the book of Acts, in the whole Bible, really. From now on, we're going to focus on Paul. And we're only going to see the Jerusalem church again through his eyes and in his story. It's going to be a change in the book of Acts. But this is when, in my opinion, all the coolest stories start to happen. Let me ask this question as we come to the end. We've been talking about orienting our perspective so that we have a spiritual outlook on life, not just a physical one. Why did Peter get set free while James had to die? If God was going to advance the church anyway, why would he wait until after James was killed? Again, we have to come back to a spiritual perspective on things. James's race was run. James had accomplished everything that God needed for him to accomplish. And it was time for him to come home. And as far as we know, the only two Christians who've been killed at this point are Stephen and James. So for a while, maybe James was sitting at Jesus' right or left hand because there were only two spots to be filled. Who knows? But we know, I, I say this verse all the time, the Lord has prepared works beforehand for us to walk in them. James had finished all of his. Paul would say this at the end of his life, I've run the race. I fought the good fight, and now the crown is waiting for me. Peter's was not done. Peter had more to do. Peter had two books that he needed to write. He had a gospel that he needed to dictate to Mark. If we look at the world the way the Bible tells us to look at it, then we will evaluate people's lives the way God evaluates them. Until you have finished the course that God has set for you, you are safe in his hands. There is, uh, I'm from Lynchburg, Virginia, which is where Jerry Falwell's church is. He's, of course, gone to be with the Lord now, but he had a famous quote that people would share around liberty all the time, which was, if you are in God's will, that is the safest place to be. There's a lot of snarky people that would come along and say, oh, really? Because some people in God's will go to prison and get beaten and get martyred. So it's like, you're totally missing the point. The point is, if you're doing what God wants you to do, you can trust that everything that happens is God's will for you. And if it's not, you can trust that prayer will overcome those things. Stay in the will of God, because until you're done, you're safe in his hands. And when you're done, the Lord's going to say, okay, let's have a glorious exit and come on up and you'll have a glorious entrance. We're safe in his hands. That spiritual perspective, you guys, is so important. The world has stripped itself of any belief in God, any belief in angels or demons or miracles or prayer, and they're the poorer for it. Have you noticed that? When you strip away any belief in all that, all that's left is the world is terrible and we are terrible people. You're left with this despairing attitude that is just filling our culture with like, well, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing here. There's nothing there. But you know what? We don't have to believe that way. The Bible shows us there's more. Every other culture believes that there's more to the world. Ours comes in and is so smart. I don't think there is anything else. But Jesus said you'd know good doctrine by its fruit, and that doctrine has not borne good fruit. But if you can believe what the Word says, that the Lord is fighting for you, that you have angels on your team, that you have an enemy who hates you and is coming after you spiritually, and that your prayers will overcome him, that will change everything. Now all of a sudden the ups and downs of life are just the turns of the story. 
this is really, really difficult. I don't know what's going to happen. When you're binge watching a TV show, you don't worry about the cliffhangers, do you? There's five more episodes. She's not going to die. There's plenty to go. You can start having that perspective about your own life. <laughs> this isn't it. There's somebody writing the story. He's already got a plan. It's going to work out. It might not work out the way I want it to work out, but his will is better than mine. You are at the center of a marvelous story. You are at the center of a battle for the world. So let's go out and live as if that were true.